0: Welcome to the Renewable Generation, a podcast about energy and climate issues by young people for all people. I'm Kelly Jang and I'm one of your co hosts, and I'm joined by my lovely co host, Steve Chan. How are you?
1: I'm doing good. I am here in San Francisco, in foggy San Francisco. I look outside my window and I just see a a gray cloud um, of Carl, Carl the cloud.
0: Carl the fog.
1: Carl the Fog, excuse me, it sounds like you know San Francisco a little bit better than I do, Kelly, but that I find that strange because you are, wait a minute, that's not, by the look of those trees outside your window, that's not Seattle, is it? Where are you at?
0: Yeah, you're right, I'm not in Seattle, I'm in Bend, Oregon right now, so I'm here um, with some friends, we're on a workcation, so I mean, we're work from home, work from anywhere, we Made the drive down on Monday, split it up into two sections because it's like a six-hour drive. So we did three hours in the morning, hung out in Portland, working at a cafe all day, and then drove here in the evening. And then we're going to do the same thing but in reverse on Friday. So it's really fun. Um, the trees are definitely different than what we have in western Washington. This is more like a pine uh, tree-type situation rather than what we have, which is more like Douglas firs in western Washington, although the biome here is substantially similar to what you would get east of the crest in Washington. So definitely not Seattle, but there are parts of Washington that look like this. Um, so that's been fun. Um, and then uh, so we're back, and uh, we both have some pretty big changes in our lives. Steve, what's new with you?
1: Yeah, so so first of all, we're back, and you know, sorry for being away for so long we we had some time off due to personal things going on in each one of our lives. And one of the first thing our the first things our listeners might be wondering is, Where's Evan? Um, so, Evan Combs, who was our moderator and, and one third of the renewable generation, has also had huge announcements in his life. He has recently started his masters in film and screenwriting at Emerson, at no longer Emerson at Loyola, Loyola um, Marymount down in Los Angeles, and he's taking a st- small step back from the podcast and unfortunately will not be able to join us on as a podcast host or a moderator anymore. But he's still behind the scenes um, editing our shows, listening to our banter. Um, we will do our best to be as comedic and have have a silky smooth of a voice as he used to have. Hey,
0: he still has a silky smooth voice. It's just that it's no longer on our podcast, okay?
1: <laughs> That's right. So I, I hope uh, Evan will will interject and add some... Some of his own sound bites here and there, so so people don't forget about him. Well, thank you, Steve, and thank you, Kelly, and thanks to all the fans for listening to me for the past couple years talk about something I know nothing about. Now I'm looking forward to just sitting back and listening to the experts, just like you guys. What about you, Kelly? What, what what's been going on? Well,
0: first of all, I asked you what's new in your life, and you only talked about Evan. Oh, yeah. um, but <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. So I uh, I guess since the last time we spoke, I started a new job. Not that. I mean, it's not that new at this point. It's been five months, but um, I recently started a job as a lead energy analyst at Bright Power. Um, so um, they're a company that does energy efficiency and electrification for uh, multifamily residential, basically apartments and affordable housing. Um, so that's it's been a really cool role for me. Um, I'm on the California team kind of building out our analysis process as we scale um, the company and especially our business unit. So kind of like getting to be on the forefront of what we're doing with more advanced data analytics has been really cool for me. Um, and big announcement for our pod, um, Bright Power is now the sponsor of the Renewable Generation. Um, so we'll be using the sponsorship to cover some of our costs related to podcast hosting as well as um, audio editing. So big it's a big move for us because we were uh, we had Evan's Climate Fact of the Day and now we have a real sponsorship. <laughs>
1: yeah and, and a huge thank you to to bright power for that uh, sponsorship and we hope to make this podcast even better um, with your guys' support um, in my life. I have recently moved to San Francisco for good from from washington d c um, and and i 'm here and i'm not i'm not leaving you can 't take me out of the city. Um, I have recently started on as a project manager at Terra Verde Energy, which is a clean energy clean energy consultancy based out of San Francisco. Um, servicing solar, battery, electric electric vehicle, um, electric rail, microgrid services. Pretty much anything under the sun that has some connection to clean energy, we're there. We're doing that. Um, so very exciting um, for me to be at this new location, doing doing really interesting work again, and continuing to drive the evolution of clean energy. Um, and also importantly, working on Pacific Time, which is which is a huge. <laughs> benefit i was recently working in on eastern time while living in san francisco which was just um my sleep schedule was even worse than it normally is so i'm glad to be able to be sleeping normally again
0: i gotta say i mean i personally wake up at like 6 a.m every day anyway so i wouldn't mind working eastern time but you know most normal people don't do that
1: yeah you also like running so (laughs) that that says a lot about you
0: (laughs) is that not normal
1: So, so format of the show going forward is that there will just be the two of us, Kelly and Steve, moderating and discussing concepts. We will be doing our best to dive into the nitty gritty as we've been doing, but also make sure to to put our head up and, and describe things in simple to understand terms. Um, So we're not going to get too wonky with you, but, but we will try to get a little wonky here and there. Um, And since this is another live recorded episode, we do have some audience members tuning in as well. Um, So people in who are listening to this on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you don't see them um, you don't hear them but they're here um, so for all for all you listeners that are live feel free to drop your comments and questions and you know anything you want into the comments and we'll read them and interact with them throughout the show all right let's start it off with a with a quick icebreaker question for for us the co-hosts but also for the audience members what song have you been recently listening to and just obsessively just playing it kind of over and over again at the top of your head. Um, Kelly, why don't you start us off?
0: Oh, well, other than, um, other than, sorry, let me, let me start over. So um, around this time every year, I always get obsessed with the song Seasons by Future Islands. Um, There's something about the transition from summer to fall that kind of just like gets me, you know, feeling all the feels. Um, And, So the way that it goes, I mean, you heard it at the top of the show, it's like seasons change. Um, And basically, to me, that represents a couple of things, right? There's like this changing from summer to fall, which honestly, this summer with the amount of climate impacts we've been experiencing has just been a huge sigh of relief. Like there's no more heat waves. It's more just like, you know, crisp, cool fall air and like you can breathe more easily and just, you know, enjoy life a bit more. Um, but then there's also the definition of seasons change which I'd say like the very conception of what seasons are to us is changing so especially in Washington the summer used to be long beautiful days with clear skies where you just like lounge around in the perfect you know 70 to 80 degree weather swim in the lake just enjoy yourself now it's like horrendous heat waves skies choked by wildfires and just it's definitely is very different and I mean, similarly for, like, winter, our definition of winter is changing from, like, oh, you know, you get to, it's going to snow, you get to ski, to maybe, like, it's just rain and flooding and landslides and horrible stuff like that. So, thanks for indulging <laughs> me.
1: My, my answer to that is a lot less poetic and related to climate change. It's uh, it's just Jolene by Dolly Parton. Um, I've been learning that song on guitar recently, and uh, the lick is... Is really good. I don't know if people realize how, how complex of a guitar song it is, but I'm uh, slowly and surely getting, getting the hang of it. So um, that's, that's my song. Uh, great song. You all should listen to it. A, it. Dolly Parton is a queen. We all know this already though.
0: Cool. Well, without further ado, let's get to it. So since we've last talked, there's been this pretty big IPCC report the IPCC stands for the intergovernmental panel on climate change it's a panel of scientists and experts like over a thousand scientists and experts from all over the world Um, the UN convenes them about every five years and they come out with this like huge report and so the fifth um, assessment I believe just came out um, a couple months ago and um, there's some there there were a lot of headlines about it that um, we're going to try to break down for you so Steve what's in that report
1: yeah, um, so, as the, so again, so the IPCC report is just not the first um, that's been released. The, the previous one was actually released in 2018, and three years later, uh, here we are. The science has been updated. Um, all of the world's best climate scientists have put their heads together and, and continue to, to work on this problem. Um, so at the previous report in 2018, one of the big takeaways is that we needed to get to 50% decarbonization by 2030. Um, and then net zero by twenty fifty, um, and so three years have passed. How how are we doing? Well, it's not looking good. We are pretty much nowhere near on track. We we are not even close to what we need to be. Even with COVID and the pandemic shutting down huge parts of the global economy and society, um, people stopped driving to work. People uh, industries kind of shutting down and buckling. We saw a dip in carbon emissions, which was um, in in a, in a you know, double-sided sword, kind of cruelly good for the climate while it was terrible for for the world. Um but emissions just just sh- rocketed back up and we are opening up and it seems we've learned um, nothing during during this great pause. Um so at this point we have 9 years left. It's 2021. Um 9 years left until 2030. Um at which point we need to be at 50% 2030. Right? Um so out- outlook's not looking good. So some of the takeaways from this IPCC report. Number 1, is that humans are the cause of climate change without a shadow of a doubt. The previous one, there was a small amount of, um, of gap of, of uh, maybe it's not, maybe it's not. Now it's 100% us. Um, so the science is very clear about this, um, in case anyone was still holding out. The second one that, that really stood out to me was that there is a more than likely situation, there's a 66% chance that we will stabilize global warming to between 1.5 to 4.5 degrees Celsius, and to us Americans, that's about, about 3 degrees to 9 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so 66% chance it will be between those two ranges, and then 33% chance that we will go even beyond 4.5 degrees Celsius. Um, and this is kind of uh, an, an alarming uh, shift, because in the past IPCC report, the, the temperature ranges we were looking at was 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius. Now it's changed to 1.5 to 4.5. So so pretty much means the science has been updated. We haven't been doing what we need to do. And um, the consequences are uh, increased climate damage.
0: Oh, one thing that I would add is that, I mean, in the past, I think this time what's different is that they modeled a bunch of different policy scenarios. And they kind of, you know, uh, this is kind of maybe a little bit random or relies on a lot of assumptions, but they kind of indicated like what the probability of each one is. So they're like, okay, if we implement like XYZ policies in like these different countries, then what would the climate result be? And based on the result of all that modeling, that's how they got the um, percentage chance of saying like, we're going to stay below 1.5 degrees or go above 4.5 degrees. And I think the like, I think also one of the big uncertainties is um, climate feedback loops, which we'll get into in a different episode. but this is the idea that, let's say like once the ice caps start melting, then um, you know the water will go down to the bottom of the ice sheet, it'll get slippier, and then it'll just like slide faster. And so you know, as the climate warms, there's going to be um, natural cycles that get set off that cause the warming to exacerbate even more. so.
1: Right, otherwise known as uh, climate tipping points. Um, yeah. Um, so one thing we want to focus on this season of the re- the renewable generation is kind of um, changing our lens and our and our expectations going forward that we will experience climate catastrophe, especially in our lifetime as as young people or people who are going to be living for any number of decades going forward, we will be living in a climate catastrophe like the 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 earth the earth's uh, Situation and environments is going to get worse, and I think it's irresponsible for us not to acknowledge that reality. Um, we can't just live with our heads in the sands anymore. Um, we need to start planning for the crisis. Um, so another another takeaway from the IPCC report um, was um, so so these things called carbon sinks. These are our natural allies against climate change. Are things like forests, soils, oceans. Um, So things that absorb CO2 more than they release CO2. Um, And this latest report said that they've absorbed 56% of all of CO2, all of the CO2 that humanity has released. Um, So these sinks are now showing signs of saturation. So they are likely to not be as big of a help as they have been in the past. In fact, um, one of the most famous carbon sinks, the Amazon rainforest, is actually now reported to be a carbon source rather than a sink. Which means that it is releasing more carbon dioxide on net than it is absorbing. So um, it's looking pretty grim.
0: Yeah, and I think this is one thing that is pretty terrifying. Like the idea that forests could be a carbon source, and so the reason why the Amazon's now a carbon source is mainly because um, there's so much land that's being—I mean, the land's just being burned down to clear uh, clear the way for agriculture, and that's that's more like human cause. But also, there's a lot of forests, um, particular in particularly in the Western U.S. that Let's say they were set aside to kind of be carbon sinks um, for offset projects. And this is something where like a company can say like, oh, well, we're protecting these trees, which is preserving this carbon. So that kind of negates the fact that we're emitting carbon emissions as a company. And this is something that's already kind of a moral hazard to begin with. But then the fact that there's been so many wildfires in the Western U.S., a lot of these carbon credit forests have just gone up in literal flames. And so there is this thing where they do have this, like, buffer pool. They're like, oh, you know, if, like, 50% of the trees burn down, it's kind of okay because we have this other 50% of trees that are not part of it. But then when it's, like, 90% of the pool burns down, then it's like, do you want a buffer pool that's, like, 10 times the size of your original pool? Like, that doesn't really make sense. And if you're a company that's kind of relying on that to prove that your emissions are low, you probably should actually try to reduce your emissions instead because – um, relying on, I mean, just given the amount of changes that are happening with our natural world, we can't rely on that as necessarily a solution.
1: Right, and that's a great segue into the next uh, takeaway from the IPCC report, which is this idea of carbon negative technologies, um, and really, I should say, carbon negative solutions, because some of them aren't even technologies. Like some carbon negative solutions are planting more forests or or protecting marshlands, which which are you know carbon sinks naturally. Um, And there's even some companies out there that are going out and planting more kelp and planting, um, you know, ocean vegetation that absorbs carbon dioxide and and sinks to the bottom of the ocean. So there are lots of natural solutions as well as purely technological ones like direct air capture and carbon capture and storage. Um, But the takeaway here is that carbon negative solutions um, will be a huge player in the second half of the century. And this is essentially because we will have failed to solve climate change in the first half. Um, so in 2050 to 2100, um, we will see a huge industry uh, to spring up that essentially sucks down carbon and stores it or does or has some use for it, some useful use for for carbon. Um, there's also here some some amount of moral risk, because as Kelly was saying, um, it, it encourages a lot of people to say, oh, I'm not going to abate my carbon emissions now because I'll just pay for uh, carbon offsets in the future. Um, but in a large, large sense, these, these technologies or these solutions haven't been commercialized yet and they are, or they're, are forests that have been burnt down already. So, um, it's kind of, it's an easy scapegoat for a lot of people to say, I'll just do it then. Um, I mean, what we really need to be doing is all of the above. We need to be abating right now. And we'll also need to be investing in these carbon negative solutions for the future.
0: Yeah, so um, if you remember when this IPCC report first came out, there were a lot of dramatic headlines saying, like, the changes are irreversible and inevitable. And to some extent, this is true. But, you know, one silver lining, which you can believe this or not, but basically, if we actually – everyone in the world collectively gets our collective stuff together and we decide to um, all, like, go full steam ahead in decarbonizing our economy – um, it's still technically possible to limit warming to the Paris Agreement's aspirational target of 1.5 degrees Celsius. And at the very least, there's like a substantial probability that we can limit it to 2 degrees Celsius if we um, are all moving in the same direction. But even if we don't get to that point, every 0.1 degree of warming that we limit will still have a huge impact on the amount of natural disasters, heat waves, the severity... And ultimately, like the number of people who are displaced or are killed by climate impacts. Um, One really good article I read recently um, in The Atlantic, written by um, climate reporter Robinson Meyer. Um, It's basically, it's called The Summer of Climate Disaster. So basically, the concept was like, look, like we see climate disaster right now happening all around us. In Seattle, it got up to 115 degrees. That's never Happened like we were breaking temperature records three days in a row, and my friends who work in the medical system were saying this is worth like the amount of heat stroke and just like people coming to the ER for heat related issues like way worse than even the worst of COVID. So I just want that to be something that we keep in mind. Um, and a really good quote from this article that um, kind of it's a good framing for the issue. He says climate change is more like a debt than terminal diagnosis. If we ignore it today, we or our descendants will only have more work to do in the future. Besides, if we do find a way to address it, then we will have found a way to make human prosperity compatible with a thriving biosphere. Because it's Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, I'm thinking of the teaching of the first century Rabbi Tarfan. It is not your duty to finish the work, but neither are you at liberty to neglect it. That's kind of the idea, like, we don't know if we can actually get to 1.5 degrees, like, probably not. But also we have to do all that we can.
1: Yep, and we got a um, we got a question in the chat here uh, from our audience here, and the the question is this guy I know is a non-believer of humans being the cause of climate change. Do you know of any of the scientists in the IPCC um, that are right-wing politically minded? He believes that scientists have a hidden agenda, um, and this is a very it's a great question and a super loaded question that we could we could also spend an entire episode on this. And I think we have in the past already um, the politics of climate change and and what it takes to actually solve it. Um, it. So I think the first thing we should say is that science itself should not be political, right? If you start from the science and you agree on the facts, you should be able to establish what is known as fact or at least um, high, highly regarded as fact by scientific, scientific, um, scientific, scientifically minded people. And then what you can say is based on my politics, I disagree on the solutions to this problem. And that's something, that's like how it should be in, in a theoretical sense um the the way it works out in in society and in reality is that um it's extreme climate change is an extremely partisan issue at least at at the at the political leadership level um actually in the, US. In the U S exactly in the us
0: i would say the the uh us republican party is the only major political party in the world that denies climate change although now they don't technically deny climate change now they say like the solutions would be too expensive and government overreach um and I mean, I would also say that like we don't know what the political viewpoints of the IPCC experts are. Like that's not the point. The point is that they're experts in their fields and have access to the best, most cutting-edge research and data. And that doesn't make a difference on whether they're right or left wing.
1: Right, and and to dive into a little, just a little bit into the idea of why, um, let's say, the right wing in, in the United States is against climate change. It, ultimately, you have to follow the money. Um, In politics, you see who is paying for people's uh, fundraisers and their lobbying events. Um, You follow big oil. It all traces back to big oil, like Chevron, Exxon, Shell, BP, and they knew about climate change in the 1980s. And in the 1970s and 1980s, they had all the research, and they chose to hide the research, hide the truth, and do a FUD campaign, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And they paid billions and billions of dollars over decades in order to um, discredit the science and um, make it a partisan issue. Um, check out one of our episodes on, on, on this. Go back on our feed. we we'll, we'll, we talk at length about this.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Bright Power, the premier provider of energy and water management services for real estate owners, investors, and operators. We enhance building performance, simplify building operations, and contribute to a healthier environment inside and out. To learn more, please visit brightpower.com. Also, we're hiring. Want to work for a company that's working to solve climate change by eliminating carbon emissions from buildings? Check out our job openings at brightpower.com we're-hiring or go to brightpower.com and click on the careers page. You don't want to miss it because clearly, then you can work with me and that would be awesome.
1: So so now that we have that sponsorship out of the way, I'd like to we've, we've talked a bit about the IPCC and the science behind it and what we can expect going forward. And as we said, we're going to this season treat look go, looking forward into the future and, and kind of start to treat this as reality. So how are we supposed to feel about it? How are we supposed to feel about the fact that our future is going to be to some extent, really hugely affected by climate change
0: well i i would say there's not any way that we are quote-unquote supposed to feel right like i think something that i've struggled with over the years is feeling like i should feel a certain way and then getting down on myself because i don't feel that way and then you know it's like some downwards like very meta downward spiral of feeling bad about yourself Um, So I would say like a lot of us feel ecological anxiety, grief, worry, and it's something that it's very easy to suffer from and feel like you're alone, but I think a lot of people um, feel the same way. Um, So I actually wrote a short piece um, a few weeks ago about a climate emotion called Solastalgia, which resonated with a lot of people actually who said that um, they felt similarly and that I think, I mean, for me, it was really, you know, validating to know that other people feel the same way and that you are kind of like putting words to the, these feelings that we feel and don't quite know how to identify and it isn't something that's talked about that often. So the word st- solostalgia it's a noun, um, derived from nostalgia. Solostalgia is a form of homesickness that one gets when one is still at home but the environment has altered and feels unfamiliar. It's used primarily to describe the negative psychological effect of chronic environmental destruction on an individual's homeland or the place they call home. Blistering heat only slightly mitigated by smoke that chokes the skies, burning our eyes and throats and lungs. Glacial ice lying bare, stripped of its protective layer of snow melting away drip by drip until there's nothing left. The sun an eerie orange orb peeking through the post-apocalyptic gray. I love summer, the long, beautiful days, blue skies over lush forests and fields of wildflowers and alpine lakes, and it was never too hot. We would say that it was Washingtonians' reward for surviving the dark, gray winter of endless clouds. I used to joke that part of the reason I chose to live in Washington, apart from the obvious beauty, was that we would most likely avoid the worst impacts of climate change due to our favorable geographic location. In fact, UC Berkeley's Climate Impact Lab actually showed Seattle as one of the few places in the U.S. whose GDP would actually increase due to climate change. Sometimes, it's hard not to feel an overwhelming sense of grief. Some call this our new normal, but extreme weather, heat, and wildfires will only become more common. It's not just a new normal, it's a new baseline, and things are only getting worse from here. Humans are exquisitely adaptable. It's how we expanded from the African span across the entire world. And so we'll be able to adapt to climate change by building seawalls, retreating further from the coasts, further into the air-conditioned and air-filtered indoors. But I still mourn the loss of the summers of my childhood that my children will never experience. That's what I wrote, and I think just I've uh, this summer with all the heat waves and wildfires, I've just been feeling a lot like this is not. It just feels really apocalyptic, and you're kind of just there feeling hopeless and like, what can I do? There's so much to do. Um, and I think this is something that it's very difficult to discuss. And so I kind of just wanted to bring that up.
1: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that Kelly. Um, and I for one can, can certainly resonate with those emotions. Um, and I've, you and I have talked a lot about this and, other of my friends have talked to you about this. Pretty much anyone our age has climate anxiety. Um, they, we understand that climate climate crisis is coming, and there's very little we can do about it. Um, so I think it's important to to create space for that, and to to kind of honor your your emotions. You know, as a human being, um, it's sad, and it could have been avoided, um, but and And not to not to forget the fact that the people and the communities around the world who will be most impacted by all this climate destruction are the communities that had the least to do with all of this so it's also a huge justice problem um it's a global justice problem that is is a is a tragedy. I think climate despair is unavoidable um and I will admit to to sometimes it's it's too much to bear um sometimes you, you, you kind of have to break down um, and you have to feel it and be real with yourself about how 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 much it sucks. Um, I think that the way I think about it is always trying to frame things in terms of optimism. Um, and I think that's the way it's, it's an active choice that I, that I make um, in order to solve climate change. Um, I think that we will solve climate change, but there's no hard and fast like zero to one, we've solved, we solved it, we've done it, right? It's like, it's kind of, we will at one point stabilize our environment and our climate, but there will be a lot of damage and a lot of destruction, a lot of death, a lot of pain, and a lot of suffering on the way there. Um, so I tend to think about it as much as I can in terms of optimism and solutions. Um, be, um, you know, when, once I'm done being sad and being done, being broken by this, you know, I kind of straighten my back, roll up my sleeves and get back to work. Um, it's the only thing you really can do. Um, so it's, you know, I, I I do have a certain amount of um, sticking my head in the sand for um, kind of as, as a survival tactic. You know, I don't mean sticking my head in the sand and ignoring all the science, but also I, I don't check the climate science every day and I just kind of check it every time there's a, a major report out. And in fact, I, my Twitter feed is is full of climate scientists that sometimes I have to just ignore them entirely um but i think that the way that i would suggest people to to phrase to to think about it is there will be a lot of climate despair and a lot of destruction and you have to acknowledge that but you still have a choice and you still every degree matters so every 0.1 degree matters as kelly has said matters if we get to two degrees celsius 2.5 degrees you know 3.2 it's still going to be better than 4.5 it's still going to be better than 5.2 So we, we just like, we cannot give up hope. Um, And we won't finish the job either. Like the job won't be completed by us, but it's our job to set up future generations so that they can finish the job.
0: Yeah, definitely. And one idea that I also come back to a lot is this idea of radical hope, which is not, it comes from basically like the indigenous um, people who were like to, you know, victims of genocide, forcibly displaced from their homes. And it's, the hope is not that like oh everything will be the same, like we will be able to continue on in the same way that we were before. But like we can preserve our culture, we can preserve like joy and connections with people we love, and find a way to move forward in this world. And um, I think that's something that's like yeah things are going to change, but we'll we need to find a way to get through it. And in the meantime, do everything that we can to um you know affect the world that we live in in a way that will, um, decrease our impact on the global biosphere.
1: Right. And there's also, there are reasons to be optimistic while, while there's a lot of stuff that we need to do and we're not on track. We have turned, you know, green finance, like clean, the the advancement of clean energy and how cheap it's gotten. Those are really big victories. And I think we should celebrate them. We should take a second and realize like how far we have come. Um, if our, at least technologically and financially, even if our political systems need to catch up, um, and and you know there there are reasons to celebrate. Um, and speaking of finance, I also think that another strategy is to look at your own personal finance and your own personal strategy for how you're going to navigate these next couple decades. Like what what do you think, Kelly? Like what what are some things that people can do for their own lives?
0: Um, well, I think <clears throat> like one thing that I would say is you could eat less meat (laughs) as part of my green new Um, I mean, these are like typical actions that like, like in terms of personal actions, right? Like we know what we need to do. It's like, you know, use less carbon intensive means of transportation, eat less meat. Um, and that's pretty much like the extent of what you can do in your personal life. One thing that you could also do is like leverage your position in society. For example, are you an employee at a company? You could say, Hey company, like we should, get 100% renewable energy, or we should, you know, let's say you're, you work in, I don't know, maybe you're like a clothing designer, you could advocate for use of more um, sustainable materials. Um, And so there's a way to incorporate sustainability, the sustainability mindset into whatever you do, you could get involved in your local city's climate action plan, which I have a little bit. Um, And just in general, like there's so many different ways that you can get involved just taking actions like in your own personal life is like probably the smallest thing that you can do, but figuring out like, you know, working with like-minded people to try to um, find the leverage points within your society where you, uh, you can make a difference.
1: Right. And and I think like one of the biggest things you can do as an individual also is write your senators, write your, your representatives, call your governor. Um, that's really what we need to focus on. I think more so than individual change is systematic change and, and one person can only do so much, but if you can, if you can move the needle just a, a little bit on the herd. That that, that ends up, you know, amplifying your impact—a huge deal.
0: Shall we address some audience questions?
1: Oh, we have some more.
0: We have we have one more from Phil.
1: You want to read it, Kelly?
0: Yeah. And by the way, if anyone has any questions, please feel free to drop them in the chat. So. Phil Villagomez says, the climate crisis is a global crisis. How can industrialized and developed nations be motivated to assist developing nations in preserving natural environments and reducing carbon-emitting industries? Many of us have heard the argument that Europe and the U.S. had no regard for the environment when they were developing, so why should poor and highly populated countries limit their growth and earning opportunity at this time? Um, Do you mind if I take a stab at this and you can add on? So I would say the idea that you need to burn fossil fuels as a a means of providing energy for your country's growth is honestly pretty outdated. So in a lot of these countries, I mean, they have very good solar radiation. And due to the dramatic decline in the cost of solar panels, solar is actually the cheapest source of energy. It's cheaper than coal. So I think that's kind of like a false dichotomy. And a lot of um, political leaders don't necessarily realize that. Um, There's this concept called leapfrogging. So it's basically like, you know, these countries, because they haven't, they don't have this legacy infrastructure that they're like super invested in. So a lot of these places, like in Africa, no one has a landline phone because they never had landlines, but now everyone has a cell phone. And so they leapfrogged over the landlines directly to the new technology. Um, Similarly, the same thing could happen with energy, right? They do not have to ever have fossil fuels or, I mean, a little bit maybe but like they can just leapfrog directly over that and move towards clean energy. And it's especially interesting. Um, I mean, we could get more into detail on this later, but a lot of these countries, like they don't necessarily have the institutional um, strength to actually have like a functioning, like large scale power grid. So that means that, um, their power system is going to end up being a lot more decentralized and localized, which in terms of local resilience could be better because like, there's no, you know, central point of failure. Um, and like I think it's kind of like the the idea that the way that the U.S. and Europe developed and became wealthy is the only way to do it, and that going to renewable energy is somehow like a sacrifice. I think that's actually false. And um, one of our big role models, former host of the Energy Gang, Jigger Shaw, he's like he rails on this all the time. He's like, it's not shared sacrifice. Like climate and renewable energy is the biggest. Um, genera- generator of wealth in the 21st century and people need to realize that it's actually you're building climate wealth by deploying these renewable energy solutions
1: Right, yeah, and I, I think it's a great point and I, I'd even add to, like, to, to, to address the question directly it's like, I think well, what developing nations can do is invest in those communities um, and, you know, I, I do think of the world through a very capitalistic lens, I guess um, just given, you know, history and, you um, yeah, I think, first of all, it is great to, it is important to acknowledge, um, again, the injustice of it all, because the developing nations, you know, got to get away with it scot-free, and, and then end up polluting the entire world, and then we're all paying the price. So a lot of people talk about um, climate reparations um, that, that uh, developed, developed and modern nations should be paying, uh, subsidizing, essentially, um, for, for developing nations to to advance in a green way, um, I also think that it's a long shot. I think that no nation in power is going to willingly tax themselves and, and play, pay climate reparations, so I don't even really think about it too much. Um, I um, I also think that on the natural gas side of things, I actually have kind of a, a controversial take, which is that natural gas is, is probably not going away anytime soon, and... It's it's it, there's studies done by Princeton and, and this um, professor called Jesse Jenkins that shows that clean um, clean energy pretty much needs natural gas in order to provide clean firm power and to balance the grid. So natural gas is one of those um, what's a necessary evil in a lot of ways. It it, emissions, it emits methane, um, but it also allows solar and wind and batteries to actually take off. Um, so on this. On this front, I actually think that the U.S. should continue to produce natural gas and actually send that natural gas, the, the liquid natural gas, LNG, to developing nations because our natural gas is actually cleaner than Russia's. Um, and if you think about it from a global political standpoint, I, um, it's all about relative emissions there. So if we don't do it, if we say we choose the moral high ground and choose not to export natural gas anymore, Russia Make no qualms about it, they will export their natural gas and as well exert geopolitical force, so I think that it, we should we should not completely create a vacuum there and we should continue to provide um, cleaner natural gas to those to those developing nations cool um, well, I
0: think that is with- quite the controversial opinion hey i hey i have I have something to add. <laughs> okay, <let's> go. <laughs> I think. I mean basically like yeah you know we would need in it it's just like substantially easier to get to a system that's like 80% decarbonized versus 100 so we would maybe have like you know 10 to 20% natural gas right now we're at like 40% and so we we sh- I don't think we should be actively trying to grow the natural gas industry the amount of gas that we have now is more than enough for the US plus many other countries so I think to the extent possible we should be squeezing natural gas out of the system particularly end uses like home heating or like you know building heating you could use a heat pump in most climates even in the northeast you could use a ground source heat pump um and just like reducing the use where we can so that the amount of gas that we do use is for the best and highest use which is like oh there's like maybe a couple days a year when there's no sun and no wind like yeah let's burn gas then but that's i think that That's, like, so much less than the amount of gas that we're using now that, like, we would have to actually, you know, like, downsize the gas industry significantly to even serve that small need. And so that's just my personal take. I I would say, like, yeah, maybe it's necessary, but, like, the size of the gas industry as it exists now is not super necessary. And, like, I would be much more helpful to also be more focused on exporting clean energy technologies, solar plus storage, Um, you know, like, smart grid technologies where you can, like, modulate your load based on, like, grid conditions and stuff like that and, I mean, those are different things that we can get into, but I think like, people like to talk about natural gas because it's something that we're really familiar with and it's like, in the long term, we will have to get away from it, and I don't think that we, it doesn't really need us to be advocating for it um, so that's just my personal opinion and I think we will now move to the last so segment of our it's show. So it's not time for
1: the section whose political co-sponsor wore a dramatic and controversial Tax the Rich dress at the Met Gala. The Met Gala fundraiser this this past Monday. That's the Green News Spiel. This is the section of, of the show where we, we add one last bit of information, one last bit of green education t- tidbit um, to wrap it all up. And uh, Kelly... Uh, what's your green news spiel this week?
0: So I actually have two. The first one is um, what I mentioned earlier. There was an article in the Guardian earlier um, this week that said meat, by which they mean animal agriculture, accounts for nearly 60% of all greenhouse gases from food production, according to a landmark study. So that's a lot. That's like almost two-thirds of all emissions come from animal agriculture. And I mean, they were basically saying, like, this is honestly on the high end of what we expected, so if you care about the climate, you should probably eat less meat. Um, But we already knew that. Um, And another green news spiel, not, this is not really news per se, it's more of a book recommendation, but I've been reading this book called The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. The genre is called cli-fi, which it's like sci-fi, but for climate, and basically it talks about what um, different people are doing to address climate change over the next like five to 50 years. Um, not This won't be too much of a spoiler because it's like just the very beginning, but basically there's like a huge, like terrible heat wave in India. And then they decide to unilaterally engage in geoengineering to spray sulfates into the stratosphere to try to reduce, um, you know, like global warming. And so it, like that's the kind of spiciness that happens in like the first 50 pages and it's like a 500 page book. So it's really interesting. I think... If you like a straightforward narrative, you'll find this, you probably won't like this because the perspective of every chapter like jumps around a lot. There's like different people and, um, it's, it's really interesting if you're ready to be in that kind of like confusing headspace fog type thing. Um, there's one article that's written from the perspective, there's one chapter that's written from the perspective of blockchain, um, which we, we actually did our last episode about. So it's, it's an excellent book, highly recommend, um. And Obama recommended it. He said it's one of the best books of 2020.
1: So. Sounds a lot like uh, a lot of the sci-fi out there, uh, like, uh, like Snowpiercer. Anyone? If anyone's watched Snowpiercer? Sounds like a lot like that, but uh, movie. Cool. Um, so my Green news Spiel this week is also on this term and this idea of green finance. Harvard University has recently just divest- divested from fossil fuels. And this is a huge blow to big oil. So Harvard is the richest school on earth, which in 2013, just just eight years ago, they pledged that they were never going to divest. Um, They've recently been forced to capitulate by activists at at Divest Harvard. Um, This sends a powerful message to future capital that it will be harder and harder to raise um, and more expensive to raise capital for big oil projects. Um, So this is just another... um, just, just another you know, data point in, in this story that, that fossil fuel companies are losing their social license to operate, as they should be. Um, they, they, they really are like the tobacco companies of, of now, um, except they, their impact could be far more reaching than, than tobacco companies. Um, Harvard is also one of the bastions of conservative capitalism and conservative universities in the world. And so this is even further a stunning blow to the fossil fuel industry. It means that smart money... Even the conservative smart money is fleeing big oil. So purely from an economic standpoint, fossil fuels have, are losing another leg to stand on, which is why I'm so optimistic about green finance and green capital.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's interesting to see that, I mean, even BlackRock is like, we can't invest in coal anymore because it's such a bad investment. And they are definitely, I mean, Harvard, you know, that's the kind of thing where you're like, oh, yes, you know, the, the liberal elites at Harvard, BlackRock Definitely not liberal, I would say. So it's pretty interesting. Um, So that's it for our show today. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in live. We'll be back next week. Maybe not live, TBD, Um, but uh, probably not live, yeah. Okay, okay, I don't know. depends on uh, what, if we get any good feedback. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, well... Um, thanks everyone for tuning in. Um, subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, Leave us a five star review. write us a nice uh, you know review in the comments. Um, and um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on social media. I, what What is our social media, Steve?
1: Um, on Facebook, we're the renewable generation. Um, on Instagram, we, each one of us, have our own Instagrams. Kelly, you're at Kelly M. Jing. I am at climate underscore Steve. And um, we also have a Twitter, uh, The Renewable Generation. So, so if you like our content, add Gen Renew Pod. Thank you. You're right. Uh, on both Facebook and Twitter. So if you like our content, give us a follow. Um, check us out and reach out to us. And, and thanks for listening. And we hope you have a good climate future.